Well, this afternoon we turn to what Jesus said about himself. And um, you know from your reading of Scripture in Matthew 16, there is this very pivotal time in the life of the Lord Jesus when um, they came, the Scripture says in Matthew 16, verse 13, to the uh, district of Caesarea Philippi. And he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He was looking for, what, what, what do people say? What, what's, the, what's the scuttlebutt about who the Son of Man is? What, what are they saying about me? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he, and he said to them, and this is the most important question of all that each of us has to answer, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He just nailed it. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus was asking, what, what are people saying about me? What, uh, what's the perception of who I am? And, uh, and Peter gave his own profession, and by the words of the Lord Jesus himself, that had not been something that Peter sort of developed on his own. That's a gift that we understand who Christ is. The Lord has to reveal that to us so that we really embrace the truth. When Peter said that, uh, that thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, that's something that people have to come to. But the Lord has to grant vision to them. He has to grant eyes to see and a heart that's open to embrace that truth. Today, what we're looking at is not what people are saying about Jesus, but what did Jesus say about himself? And uh, sometimes you may hear, and it's sad, but it's often the case that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And, and of course, that statement is made by people who, who either have not read the scriptures or they certainly don't understand the scriptures because there are many, many instances where the Lord Jesus specifically claims that he is God. And on your notes, top of page one, there are some references from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the Synoptic Gospels. And then the Gospel of John, where we'll be spending most of our time today, is a very unique uh, gospel. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking at the history of Jesus, the life of Jesus, uh, through a similar set of lenses. But uh, each of these references are statements that are made and questions that are made and, and attestations that are made by the religious authorities that are challenging him. And for instance, if you turn in Matthew 26, 63 to 64, we'll just look at one of these. We, we won't look at every single one of them. They're actually very similar to each other. But Matthew 26, 63 and 64, There is this, well, actually, I have to go back up to verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? This is in the interrogation of Christ. What is this that the men are saying or testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they understood exactly what he was saying. You, you, how do I know that? Because verse 65, they, the, the high priest tore his robes. He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. There was no question about what he was saying about himself. There was no ambiguity about Jesus' profession of who he is. And you'll find parallel passages in Mark and in Luke. But there are a number of instances where Jesus references himself as I am. And the, the Greek expression that is used is ego eimi, and that may not mean much to you, and, it, and it's not necessary that you know Greek, but that's a, a very distinctive expression that is often used uh, by the Lord Jesus. And it's actually, if you were to look back at Exodus 3, verse 14, and look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, we call that the Septuagint, when the Lord God revealed himself and said, back in Exodus 3, I am who I am, basically, I am, the self-existent one, the always existing one, the true God of heaven and earth, In the Greek Old Testament, you would see this Greek expression, I am. And there were a number of times, uh, there were over 20 times, when Jesus uses that exact expression when he's referring to himself. And in John's Gospel, for instance, 23 occasions, and they're listed here for you. Uh, But in in some of them, uh, if we were to look, uh, for instance, uh, at, uh, at, at each one of these, what you would see, and sometimes uh, it will be translated, I am he, uh, but, but it, the translators will often supply the word he because it makes more sense to us that way, I am he. But often what Jesus is saying directly is I am, and one of the, the very important passages, we looked at this in previous weeks, is John eight fifty eight, where Jesus said before Abraham was, do you remember what he said? I, I am. Not I was, or I used to be, or I will be, but I am. And that's a very, it's an odd expression from a linguistic standpoint to say before someone was, I am. You would expect someone to say before some such and such an event, I was. But when he uses that expression, I am, he is speaking of his eternal existence. He's speaking of his self-existence, the perpetuity, the eternality of who he is. And it's a very distinctive expression. And people knew exactly what he meant when he, when he said that. And the high priests and the religious authorities, when they heard him claiming to be I am, they knew what he was saying. And they knew what he was referring to. But in a number of these instances, 23 occasions where Jesus uses this Greek expression, ego, a me, I am, in many of those instances, and they, they, they all occur in the Gospel of John, He couples that expression, I am, with a description, a metaphor, uh, a picture of who he is. And he he explains uh, each of those. And these are the I am statements. You may have heard of the I am statements. There are seven of them. And every single one of them is in John's Gospel. And they're listed here for you on page one. The one we're going to look at today is is the first one. And they're listed in, in sequential order. I am the bread of life. 
Sometimes he will give these statements without a, a descriptor, without a qualifier. And, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but for instance, in John 8, 24, if you flip over there and just look, uh, John 8, 24, Jesus actually, starting in verse 23, said, uh, he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, and I suppose that most of your translations will have the word he, and you'll notice that that's in italics. Do you see that in your text? When you see those words in italics, it means that that's not in the text. That means that the translators have supplied that so that it is more readable for you. But what Jesus literally said, that I am, and and this is a statement that couples back to Exodus 3.14, where the name of God is revealed. And it's, it's a very powerful attestation of Jesus Christ. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. He didn't say, I am he. He said, unless you believe that I am the self-existent one, God himself, Lord God Almighty, you will die in your sins. And so we have the, these instances, and we're going to be looking at um, a number of these I am expressions over the the following weeks, specifically the I am statements of, uh, of the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the true vine. But they couple, if you were to look back at some of these statements, they couple back to Isaiah chapter 43, where the same expression, if you were to look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Old Testament's in Hebrew and Aramaic, but if you were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament and you were to look at Isaiah 43, verse 10, you'd see that this same expression, ego eimi, I am, is used. And the, the, the Jews, the religious authorities, they knew their Bibles. They didn't believe, as, we, as they should have, about the Messiah, but they, they knew what the text said. And there are many that know what the text says. But until the text is opened to the hearts of those, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, it doesn't come alive. But they knew exactly what he was saying. He was referencing himself back to Isaiah chapter 43. He was referencing himself back to Exodus 3.14. And he was saying, I am the self-existent one. I am the God who made all things. The one who can predict the future because he made the future, because he has always existed, because he's perpetual, eternal. So, top of page two, J. Sidlow Baxter makes a very helpful little synopsis of, uh, of these statements. He said, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not merely come to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the message. He is the word. Well, the passage we're going to look at today, and if you locate this in your scriptures, we'll be going over a number of passages, a number of verses in John 6, and I've reproduced John 6, verse 1 to 51. And if you're wondering how, we're going to cover 51 verses in a brief period of time. 
We're going to do that, but we're not going to go verse by verse. But but there are. It's important that you get the setting, and so I've reproduced this for you. But it falls into four major divisions, and if you want to know what those divisions are, I can provide that for you. There is an outline that uh, is provided for you on page four of your notes, and it's important that we see the setting. Anytime we're looking at a text. Uh, we need to see what's the larger context, what's the, what's the setting of that passage so we can under, because these conversations take place within a setting and, and we need to grasp what the environment was when these conversations are taking place. But in John 6, uh, verses 1 to 51, the first thing that we see, and this occurs in verses 1 through 9, is that there was a large crowd, that, a, a vast multitude that had been following Jesus because he had done a number of miracles, a number of signs uh, on those who were sick. John uses, the Apostle John uses a word for sign, and the Greek word is semeon. It's a very distinctive word. It literally means an attesting miracle. It's not just a show of power. It's not just a display of, of something flashy. These were signs that are designed specifically and do, in fact, specifically show that he is God himself. They are attesting miracles. And John uses this expression, semeon, or sign, a number of times in, in his gospel. But they had seen these signs that he was performing among those who were sick. They didn't all understand the significance of those signs, but they saw the signs. And he goes up on a mountain you know, with his disciples, and this crowd begins to, to coalesce around him. And you have uh, Philip, who is approached by the Lord, and, and, the, the, and Jesus asks him, where are we going to feed all these guys? And it turns out there's 5,000 men. There's more than 5,000, but there's 5,000 men that are identified. It's a large crowd. And Philip really doesn't have an answer. He says it, it would require at least uh, 200 denarii worth of bread uh, to even begin to touch the need. And that, that would be about seven months of wages for an ordinary worker. And it probably would be more money than that. So obviously it's beyond their ability to meet that need. And then Andrew pipes up and he says, but I know a young man, and he has, uh, in verse 9, a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are we going to do with that? That's really, that we got five barley loaves and two fish. So we got two and a half fish sandwiches that we can make for all of, all of these, these guys. How are we going to feed them all? And when Jesus had asked this question, he already knew the answer. He was testing them. He, he already knew exactly what he was going to do. And so he said, have everybody sit down. It's time to eat. And, and then the scripture tells us that there were about 5,000 men, 5,000, not 500, 5,000. And so the Lord takes those loaves and those fish. And the scripture says very specifically that in verse 11, they had as much as they wanted. They, they weren't scrimping. And in verse 12, uh, that, that, that they, when they were filled, then he said, gather up all the fragments. And, and they had 12 baskets full that they gathered of just the fragments of those who had eaten. And the people saw this sign, same word, Simeon. And they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus understood what their perception was. He, they, their perception was, We've got to make him king. They were going to take him and, and make him king. And that was not why he came, it was to be an earthly king, at least not before the millennium. But they, so he, he withdrew to a mountain, verse 15. 
And that's really the, the, the first uh, development here, uh, the preparation for the miracle and then the feeding of the 5,000. And then the third segment uh, is another sign, and that's when Jesus walks on water. And that starts in verse 16. And so evening comes, and there's already been this feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus has withdrawn himself to a mountain to be alone, the Scripture says. And his disciples went down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they got into a boat, and they began to row across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, but without Jesus in the boat. And they were moving along. They, they'd covered about three or four miles. That's, it's not a, an insignificant distance that they had gone. And they began to face some fierce headwinds. And then the scripture tells us that in the middle of the night when they were rowing, that two things happened. Number one, they saw Jesus walking on the water. And secondly, he was outpacing them. How do I know that? Because they said he was approaching the boat. He was drawing near to the boat. He was moving faster than they were. And they were filled with fear. They were frightened, and he says to them, it's I, do not be afraid. So they received him into the boat, and then literally they were exactly where they wanted to be. They had already reached their designation, their destination immediately. Well, this is taken note of by those who saw that there's been just one boat and, and Jesus wasn't in it, etc. and how did that all happen? So we've got a second sign. We've got Jesus walking on the water, and we've got the feeding of the 5,000. Starting in verse 22, this is the, the focal point, this, but I wanted to give you the, the setting of what was taking place. But they're standing on the sea, and they, they, they take all these things, and there's three questions that they ask them. The first question that they ask is in verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? And he begins to, to turn the, the, the discussion, and this is often the case when a question is asked of Jesus, he will use that question and he will supply an answer that is much more significant than what they were asking. He wasn't just going to say, when did he get there? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, these, these attesting miracles, because you had some food to eat. They, 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 give me some more bread. That's, that's what they were looking for. They, they were amazed at all of this. Do not work. And this is a key statement that he makes in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set himself. So he answers this first question. And they say, what time did you arrive? And he says, that's not really what you should be focused on. I'm not, I'm not here to talk about bread, literal bread. Now, Jesus often spoke about bread. Matthew 4, the temptation, when, when the Satan himself came to him and, and, and tested him and, and he said, turn these stones into bread. And he could have done that, but he suppressed voluntarily his divine prerogatives to exercise that miracle. He could have done it, of course. That would have been outside the, the, the bounds of what the Father had sent him to do at that particular point in time. And he said, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, he's quoting verbatim. And he does that throughout the temptation sequence in Matthew 4. He goes verbatim to Deuteronomy, and he answers the devil. And in Matthew 6, we have what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, but he tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus talked often about bread. And in John, there's a number of instances about bread, but almost all of them occur in chapter 6. And that's because he's focusing upon a very unique form of bread, and he's talking about himself, the bread of life. 
And he's saying that this bread is what you really should be looking for is not food that perishes. You should be looking for the food that endures, verse 27, to eternal life. And who's going to give that to you? The Son of Man will give that to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. That's the first question and the first answer. The second question that they ask him is, and it's, they're saying, and they, they do not understand what's going on, because they say, well, what should we do that we may work the works of God? And they're keying off of what's in our Bible in verse 27, when he says, don't work for the food which perishes, but implied work for the food which endures to eternal life. And they're saying, well, what kind of work do we do? How often do we talk to people who, about eternal life, and the question is, what do I need to do? And the answer is not, what do I need to do? It's what has been done. The law says do, and grace says this has been done. And so what Jesus is saying is, you can't do anything that will get you eternal life. You can't work your way to heaven. They did not not fully understand that. But he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he, that is God, has sent. And he's always pointing to himself. And he's saying, you can't get there with your own efforts. You can't do the work that's necessary to have eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't do it. And so then a third question that they ask in verse 30, so they, well, what sign are you going to do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What a testing miracle. They're asking for a sign. And they're referencing the time in, in the Exodus when manna was given. And Jesus doesn't answer their question about a sign. He, he, he does what he often does. He, he gives them something different than what they were seeking. He's not going to give them a sign. He's going to point them not to a sign but to himself. The signs had already been given. The signs were testing miracles. But he said, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Now this expression, bread out of heaven, is very significant because he will later say in this same gospel that I have come, on, uh, verse 38, I have come down from heaven. And the Jews, when, when John uses the expression the Jews, he's not talking about the Jews in general. It's an expression that he uses for the religious authorities who were very arrogant, who were very indignant, who completely resisted the notion that Jesus is who he said he was. And so this expression, when when ultimately the the Jews are grumbling about him, he's not referring to everybody in particular. He's referring to the religious authorities. But this this third question is, what sign are you going to give us? And he says that, truly I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread. It's a gift. God the Father gives this bread. He's given this to you. It is a gift. It cannot be earned. For the bread of God comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They were not expecting that. He said earlier, you came to me because you've seen the signs. but, But more importantly, you're just looking for bread. But you're looking for the wrong bread. And that's, that's, that people all around the world are looking for the wrong bread. They're looking for something that they think will satisfy them. And their focal point is not eternity. Their focal point is their next meal. Their focal point is the next 24 hours, the next two hours. And all of us sitting in this room lived that way until God changed our hearts, didn't we? We did. We weren't looking at eternity. We, or if we did, we were denying, we were living in denial about what would happen when we die. 
But Jesus is saying to them that there is a bread that you should really be longing for, and I am that bread. So he's going over uh, to them, and, uh, and, he an- and they ask him, well, give us this bread. He- he's got the retention, and they're still not completely in sync with what he's describing in verse 34. And then verse 35, there were three times in John 6 that he refers to himself as the bread of life. He does it in verse 35, he does it in verse 48, and he does it in verse 51. But in verse 35, I am, ego me, the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he anticipates what he's going to say in John 7 is there will be water flowing out that will feed you for, and satisfy you. But right now he's focusing on bread. It's interesting that he puts coming and believing in, in juxtaposition with each other. But the one who comes to me, and the reason he does that is in verses 36 to 40, he, and, and in following, he, he makes a number of statements, and we've, we've dealt with these precious passages earlier when we dealt with the doctrines of grace and the efficacious call, the irresistible grace. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. No one. But the one who comes, he will in no wise cast out. And, and what Jesus is saying is that I am that bread, and if you come to me and if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And that's the gospel. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me will certainly not cast out. Who's going to come to Jesus? The ones that have been given to him by the Father. And when we've looked at the Gospel of John earlier, we've looked at the fact that the Father has given to the Son the elect, those who from all eternity past have been ordained to come to a saving faith. It's not a reaction that God the Father makes when he looks down and he sees that so-and-so is going to respond and so I'm going to draw him. He's already made that determination in eternity past that that person will come and the one who comes will in no way be cast out. That's already been ordained in eternity past. So you're sitting here today as those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully, as your only hope of heaven forsaking every other hope that you may have. And if that's the case, you came to that very precious, that very eternal saving conclusion and that decision because God the Father in eternity past, before you were even a a glimpse in your mother and father's eye, made that decision that you would be his. And he set his saving love upon you. And you are here because he did that. And you will never be lost because Jesus says that no one in John 10 can ever be snatched out of my hand. No one can ever be snatched out of my Father's hand. And the reason he says no one can snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand is because the Father and the Son always work in concert. And those who the Father had given to the Son are, are saved by the Son. And so it's a very precious passage. But he, he unpacks this discussion about the bread of life in John 6. And, and there are those who did not believe, but in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will never be cast out. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the, one, the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of, the, of him who sent me, that's the Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise him up, raise it up on the last day. So who's saved? those whom the Father has given to the Son. 
Are all of those people saved? Absolutely, every single one. Can any, any fail? No. The work of the Lord Jesus in his saving work completely, fully, finally does exactly what the Father had ordained in eternity past. And every single one of you sitting here today have embraced Jesus again. That's because the Father embraced you in eternity past and you are safe in the arms of Christ because you, you can never be lost. And what a precious thing that that is. Well, the Jews were grumbling and because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They, they understood what he was saying. And twice before he had said that he came down out of heaven. And then they're saying, I know his genealogy. He's a naturally born guy. He, he's the, the, the Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father. And, of course, we know better than that because the last week we talked about the virgin birth. We know that Jesus was not sired by his father. We know that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the work of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't understand. Or they didn't embrace that. So how does he say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus says, don't grumble. But then he says, why are you grumbling? In in essence, he's going to answer that question. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And when he says that word come, he's earlier said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And coming and believing are synonymous. They're, They're parallel expressions. Coming to Christ and believing to him are parallel. And so you're not coming, you're not believing Uh, Because the Father hasn't drawn you, essentially, that's what he's saying. One more time, or twice more, pardon me, he he references himself as the bread of life. But before he does it the second time, look at verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. In verse 48, I am, ego eimi, the bread of life. And in verse 51, I am, ego eimi, the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So that's the, the, a quick survey of 51 verses. You didn't think we could do that. But we, we, just, we literally did that, and we've got some time to spare. What I want to do is, is just highlight some of these features on page 5. And I've provided them for you uh, now that we've sort of summarized Uh, these four sections, but the signs are the setting. And I mentioned earlier that this is an expression that John the Apostle uses, Simeon. It's a very distinctive word. It means an attesting miracle. These signs, again, are not just flashes of of power. They're they're designed to point the eye and the heart and the soul to Christ. People see that and say, only God could do that. Only God could do that. And that's true. Only God can and does do those things the feeding of the 5,000, and the walking on water. But the summons, and, and so this is really dealing with this, what, what do we do? What, what, there, there's, there, what work do we do? And the answer that he's giving is you can't work your way to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. It, it, it's the work of God is the answer that you believe in him. And so do you believe? And and he says, again, these parallel expressions, if you come to me and if you believe in me, you have eternal life. What does it mean to come to Christ? Look at page 6. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful expository thoughts on the Gospels, second paragraph, what does coming to Christ mean? It means that movement of the soul which takes place when a man, feeling his sins, 
and finding out that he cannot save himself, hears of Christ, applies to Christ, trusts in Christ, lays hold on Christ, leans all his weight on Christ for salvation. When this happens, a man is said in scripture language to come to Christ. So if someone is asking the question, what must I do to have eternal life? And the answer must be, you must come to Christ. And if they say, what does it mean to come to Christ? Charles Spurgeon, down in the second to the last paragraph, gives a little bit more information. Faith in Christ is coming to him. It is not an acrobatic feat. It is simply a coming to Christ. Coming is a very simple action indeed. It seems to have only two things about it. One is to come away from something, and the other is to come to something. Spurgeon says it's not an acrobatic act. I, I normally don't take exception with Charles Spurgeon, but, but I've used an illustration that, that I think may capture this. If you've seen a trapeze artist, haven't you, where you've got him swinging on this trapeze, and then you've got someone on the other side, and there's a transfer that has to take place, right? They, they synchronize these things. And so you've got this one artist hanging on to a trapeze on one side, and, you, and the only way he's going to get across is by a transfer of weight. And on the other side, there's another trapeze artist, and that trapeze artist has his hands extended. There comes that time when the one who the trapeze artist is, is wanting to get all the way across, he can't equivocate, he can't sit on the fence. He has to transfer from one source of support, his trapeze, and take the hand of the one that is extended to him and trust that they will be caught and he will be held, and he is. And that transfer is an act of faith. That transfer is what it means to come. It means that you're forsaking every other thing that you had. It means that you are depending entirely on the one who says, I'll catch you, and I will not let you go, and I will take you safely to the other side. I think it is an acrobatic act. I think, it's, I think that's, that, that's what takes place when someone comes to Christ. They have forsaken every other avenue of support, and they have confidence that the one who says, I'll catch you and I'll take you home, will in fact never drop you, and he will never let you go. And he does exactly what he says he will do. And that's a human metaphor, but I think it is, in a sense, an acrobatic act. It's forsaking and trusting. And as... as, as uh, one said, it, it, there are these two dimensions, Spurgeon did say, it is coming away from one thing and is coming to something else. Today we're going to have a parent dedication, a child dedication, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But J.C. Ryle, I thought it would be appropriate to have, these are admonitions to the children of the parents. I ask the children of religious parents to mark well what I am saying. It's the highest privilege to be the child of a godly father and mother and to be brought up in the midst of many prayers. It is a blessed thing indeed to be taught the gospel from our earliest infancy, to hear of sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and holiness and heaven from the first moment we can remember anything. But, oh, take heed that you do not remain barren and unfruitful in the sunshine of all these privileges. Beware lest your heart remains hard and penitent and worldly notwithstanding the many advantages that you enjoy. Top of next page. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the credit of your parents' religion. 
you must eat the bread of life for yourself and have the witness of the Spirit in your own heart. You must have repentance of your own, faith of your own, and sanctification of your own. That's obviously written to a child that understands. We're not talking about that message to one that doesn't understand these words, but that's a charge to the parents, or to the children of the parents. So we've talked about the summons. That means to come. It means to believe. It means to, to forsake every other hope and to trust in the one who says, I'll take you safely home. Well, the sent one is the Lord Jesus, and the Father has sent him. And it's very clear in verse 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And we've talked about the preexistence of Christ. And there are many, many passages in John that talk about the preexistence of Christ. But for him to be sent means that he existed before the incarnation. That's obvious. That's, that's very clear. But the source, what's the source? And so then they're referencing back to the manna in the wilderness and the highlighted word as Jesus says, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread of heaven. The provision is all of God, isn't it? We, we've looked at that so many times. It's, Moses didn't manufacture the manna. Moses was the one that, that God used as a prophet, as a leader, as, as, as a, an emissary of the people of God. But where did, the, where did the manna come from? Moses didn't give them the manna. God gave them the manna. The manna is, prefigures the saving work of God, the, the bread that comes down from heaven. And Moses didn't give them the manna. God gave them the manna. God, salvation is always entirely and only a work of God. And so no human can give that to you. Only God can give that to you. And he does. He gives it freely. He gives it freely. But it's, it's, Moses didn't give this. But my father, he says, it's important that you know where this came from. My Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And there he transfers from the manna to the Son of Man. And he says, who is this bread of God that comes down out of heaven? It's me. It's absolutely me. Make no mistake about it. The manna you ate and you died because it would not give you eternal life. You eat of me and you will have eternal life and you will never perish. And it's a gift of God. And there are in a, a number of passages that, that, that talk about this very thing, about him coming to provide. John three thirteen. no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I've not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And you can look at some of these other expressions. But when he says in verse 33 of John 6, which we, we looked at just a moment ago, for, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. For is an explanatory word. It's saying, let me give you the reason. When, so when you see for, he, they're F-O-R, they're, they're, there's a bridge that, that, that the writer is making. They're making a connection. And what's the purpose of this? What's he explaining? And he's explaining that he is... Jesus is the bread of God, that he came from, the, from God. And the purpose, top of page 8, is that he would give life to the world, spiritual life, eternal life. The third paragraph down, Henry Morris said this, Jesus not only denied their demand for a sign from him, but he denied that manna was a sign from Moses. From Moses is the key. It was rather a gift from God. 
In effect, Jesus told them that he himself was their sign. He said, would you give us a sign? They were demanding a sign. Guess what? I am the sign. And I've been sent from heaven. The Father has sent me as a gift, as the bread of life that will give you eternal life. So we've looked at the, the summons, we've looked at the source, we, what are the statements, and, and we've referenced this earlier about three times that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and I give eternal life. The one who eats of me has eternal life. If you come to me and you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Top of page nine, another S, the security. And we have to, to understand this, what a precious reality this is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. None will be left. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And why can he say that? Because I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes on him will have eternal life. The sufficiency. They were looking for the bread of this world. They were looking for their next meal. How many of us have friends, family members? We're going to have Thanksgiving. We're going to be looking at a a nice meal. Other than the memories that we have to treasure after that meal, the the food will be gone in, in, in a couple hours, but it will not sustain you forever. But there is bread that will sustain you. And we're talking about the sufficiency of the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down out of heaven, that we may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. David Platt said this, When we come to Christ, our thirst is quenched by the fountain of life, and our hunger is filled with the bread of heaven. We discover that Jesus is the supreme source of satisfaction, and we want nothing apart from him. We realize that he is better than all the pleasures, pursuits, plaudits, and possessions of this world combined. As we trust in Christ, he transforms our tastes in such a way, and this is important, get this, that we begin to love the things of God that we once hated, and we begin to hate the things of the world that we once loved. If you want to know what difference it makes when you come to Christ, there will be a sea change in your whole world, and you will love things that you never loved before, and you will hate things that you never hated before. And it was very countercultural, because who's the God of this world? The enemy himself, and his value system is 180 degrees different than Jesus. And so when you come to Jesus, you're, you're going to have a brand new heart. If anyone's in Christ, a new creation, the old things passed away, new things have come. Not going to be the same person, can't be the same person. New heart. God takes away a heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And you begin to love the things that you once hated and you hate the things that you once loved. Well, go to page 10 and 11, and, and I'm, I'm just in, I can't really expand on this, but you can read this on your own. I, I, I referenced earlier that this very pregnant expression of uh, Jesus when he says, Ego, a me. A lot of times we might just pass over that, but it's a mistake to, to trivialize that expression. I, I heard someone preach on this message not too long ago. I was listening just a few, to a few messages on the bread of life, and someone said, you know, it, it may be that, that Jesus, when he used this expression, was referring back to Exodus 3 or Isaiah 40, some of these other passages, but how else would he say it? 
I think that misses the point entirely. And you can read, there are men who really know the, the scriptures very thoroughly. They know the languages very thoroughly. And the essence is when Jesus uses this expression, ego in me, he did that very intentionally, very clearly, because he didn't want us to miss the fact that when he says, I am, he's saying, I am the God who made you. I am the God of all eternity. I am the Lord God. I am the one who revealed himself in Exodus 3. I am the only one who can save you, and I am that one who can save you. And so John uses that expression, ego e me, I am. And every single one of these expressions, when, he, when Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life or the door or the shepherd or the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, etc., he always prefaces by saying that I am that person. God, I am, I am God. And then he will say, and as God, here's who I am. I am the bread of life. And I've come down from heaven that the one who comes to me, the one who believes in me, the one who partakes of me, will never hunger, will have eternal life. So we're going to unpack these, these I am expressions, but I think you can see how beautiful they are. I think you can see how Jesus discloses who he is and why he's come. And it clarifies for us, I think, the gospel message when, when we said earlier, uh, actually, J. Siddle Baxter said that Jesus is the gospel. He is the bread. He is the door. He is the shepherd. He didn't simply come to provide a door or to provide bread. He is the door and he is that bread. So let me close this with a word of prayer.